Good evening, guys. Welcome, guys. welcome to Purposes and Priorities, our journey through First Timothy as a men's Bible study. Tonight we're going to look at First Timothy, a big chunk of scriptures, verses 1 through 16. Priorities for church life, primarily benevolence and widows. And so uh, before we dive into it, I thought we would listen to the New Living Translation on my iPhone as an audio feature. I love this app called Blue Letter Bible, which has multiple translations, some concordances, and some Calvary Chapel guys teaching verse by verse. So Chuck Smith is through the whole Bible, and also some of it is audio Bible if you want to hear it. So it's a good app. I recommend it. And you can't surf through it which I require all my apps not to be surfable. So here we go. Chapter 5. Never speak harshly to an older man, but appeal to him respectfully as though he were your own father. Talk to the younger men as you would to your own brothers. Treat the older women as you would your mother, and treat the younger women with all purity as your own sisters. The church should care for any widow who has no one else to care for her. But if she has children or grandchildren, their first responsibility is to show godliness at home and repay their parents by taking care of them. This is something that pleases God very much. But a woman who is a true widow, one who is truly alone in this world, has placed her hope in God. Night and day she asks God for help and spends much time in prayer. But the widow who lives only for pleasure is spiritually dead. Give these instructions to the church so that the widows you support will not be criticized. But those who won't care for their own relatives, especially those living in the same household, have denied what we believe. Such people are worse than unbelievers. A widow who is put on the list for support must be a woman who is at least 60 years old and was faithful to her husband. She must be well respected by everyone because of the good she has done. Has she brought up her children well? Has she been kind to strangers? Has she served other Christians humbly? Has she helped those who are in trouble? Has she always been ready to do good? The younger widows should not be on the list because their physical desires will overpower their devotion to Christ and they will want to remarry. Then they would be guilty of breaking their previous pledge. Besides, they are likely to become lazy and spend their time gossiping from house to house, getting into other people's business and saying things they shouldn't. So I advise these younger widows to marry again, have children, and take care of their own homes. Then the enemy will not be able to say anything against them. For I am afraid that some of them have already gone astray and now follow Satan. If a Christian woman has relatives who are widows, she must take care of them and not put the responsibility on the church. Then the church can care for widows who are truly alone. Elders who do their work well should be paid well, especially those who... All right. That was a New Living Translation. Uh, Paul is addressing, in review here, a young minister who's leading the congregation in Ephesus. And Ephesus is quite a place. And the early church is exploding in growth. Hundreds of people have come to Christ. And as they learn at the very early days of the church in Acts chapter 6, widows are an issue. Especially in the beginning of the church because so many of them were from out of town. Separated, you know, by countries and boundaries and hundreds of miles from their homelands. And... Uh, so the church instituted a ministry to widows that were overseen by men that we call deacons, but literally the Greek word was um, waiting on tables for this particular ministry. So it's my belief that the ministry of a deacon or a minister is not just limited to widows, but it can be any other kind of ministry, uh, be it repairing homes for widows or a food distribution to widows or helping parents disciple their children or discipling men. It's obviously the ministry. Uh, tonight we're going to talk about taking care of widows who are truly widows. It seems that there's two things happening in this chapter. Uh, there's determination from Paul's teaching as to who he deems as widows the church should be helping 
but also who he deems as widows that should be part of the ministry team in helping minister to others. Because um, a widow that's being supported by the church has free time on her hands, and if she's a godly woman, she can be a tremendous asset. And so with that being said, let's dive into the text. He says, do not rebuke an older man. An elder is literally what he says, a presbyteros, which could refer to both the office of a church elder, a bishop, an overseer, and or an older man. Timothy being a younger man, it's not right for a younger man to rebuke or be harsh with an older man. But exhort him, or the old King James says, entreat him as a father. Come, uh, like, come on, Dad, let's talk. Help me understand what in the world is going on with you. Can we talk? And uh, I had such a talk with my own dad this week. <laughs> he's doing things, thinking he's a young man, and I had to take him to a couple passages of Scripture in Psalms where David is asking God to teach him to number his days, that he may know how frail he is. And then the other passage I showed him was uh, helping him number my days that I may have a heart to know wisdom. And my dad said, well, I can do anything an 18-year-old can do. I says, you can't play kickball. I never have wanted to play kickball. <laughs> I said, I'm not telling you how to apply it, Dad. It's in the Bible for a reason. And you're not a teenager anymore, and so you've got to make some adjustments here and there. So with that being said, uh, he says, don't rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father, and younger men as brothers. Older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, with all purity. So nobody likes to be rebuked harshly anyway. I've rebuked some younger men harshly. It didn't go well. I was angry. And uh, it doesn't work. And it's definitely not with older men. And so younger men, you, you address them as brothers. I have brothers. I love them. And, and I've had help me understand conversations with them. And they don't always receive me very well. But because I'm not harsh, it doesn't damage the relationship. Older women as mothers. I had the same conversation with my own mother. And she was much more receptive. Of course, she was in the hospital. <laughs> than my dad was, and younger women as sisters, with all purity. Why does he say that, with all purities? Well, younger women are more attractive, and as a spiritual leader, you just have to be careful with the younger sisters. Can't uh, use any words that may be interpreted as a double entendre or as flirtatious. You have to be very careful, and... Uh, Sometimes they love to play the you hurt me card, and you have to just be firm and stand your ground. Um, then he jumps into caring for widows. Verse 3, honor widows who are really widows. That's the whole gist of what he's about to say. Take care of them. Make sure their needs are met. This relates to honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the earth, the fifth commandment. And Jesus rebuked the Pharisees because many of them were not honoring their parents in that, not that they were bad-mouthing them, but they were not caring for them in their old age because they would say things like, well, we don't have the money. It's been Corbin, which is a good word, but it means fully devoted to God. Everything I had that could be used to bless you, Mom and Dad, you know, the stuff I could sell, I have willed it to the church or to the temple. And somehow they're using, trying to use God against God's commands. And Jesus said, you guys are making God's word have no effect. This doesn't hold any water. Um, the family preexisted the church. The family parents preexisted the temple. Uh, this is the foundation stone of, of society, and we are to honor our parents. And so it is, he's about to get into, you know, if your mom's a widow, you've got to help take care of her because dad's gone. 
So those who are really widows are those that don't have kids around to help take care of them. That's literally what he's saying. So, verse 3 again, honor widows who are really widows. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, the old King James says nephews, so it could even include a sibling's children that they've helped raise, let them first learn to show piety at home and to repay their parents. So the children and grandchildren are to help support the widows in their family. Does that make sense? Somehow in our culture, we think it's the responsibility of the state. Um, and sometimes the church gets leaned on. Responsibility of the church, that's not how Paul saw it. And it's not how God sees it. He says, for this is good and acceptable before God. So we have a responsibility and uh, to take care of of our parents so that their church or our church isn't burdened. Why? Is the church supposed to help people? Yes. But resources that go to help people whose family should be helping them could be going to somebody who doesn't have a family to help them. Does that make sense? Now she who is really a widow, verse 5, and left alone. So there's widows and then there's real widows. A real widow is somebody who has nobody. She's like an orphan. (laughs) And left alone, she knows it. And what is she going to do if she's a believer? She has no choice but to trust in God and continue in supplications and prayers night and day. There was a widow like that in the temple named Anna who prophesied over Jesus. And the Bible says she was praying night and day in the temple praying for the consolation of Israel. And she was there in the house of God. That's all she had. She was fully devoted. She was a true widow. Verse 6, But she who lives in pleasure is dead while she lives. Now apparently in Ephesus, there's all kinds of temptations in that town. That was a vile, wicked city. And so a Widow, especially a young widow who doesn't have a man around to tell her what to do. (laughs) There's all sorts of things she could get into, which uh, could reflect spiritual death, even though she's supposed to be alive. And these things, verse 7, command that they may be blameless. But if anyone does not provide for his own especially those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. The old King James says, worse than an infidel. So we all pretty well understand we've got to help take care of our children. But this reflects to our moms and dads and even our grandparents. We've got to be part of the family team to help do this. Why? Because even unbelievers have enough sense to know that they have responsibility. And when believers don't do it, what kind of witness is that? We're worse than unbelievers. Now he gets into what is either uh, one of two things or it is two things. It's either a list of people to take care of or a list of people to help take care of widows or both. He says in verse 9, Do not let a widow under 60 years old be taken into the number. What in the world does that mean? She could work, right? Yeah. She's not frail yet. She's not of age. She spoke. I'm going to be 60 in a couple months. What's today's date? 13th of April. All right, yeah, in two months and a day, I'm going to be 60. I'm not frail yet. Don't tell me. (laughs) My mom, she's 81, frail. She can't be working at Walmart, but I could. So 
With that being said, in that day and time, 60 was old, though. I mean, the average age of women, one commentary says, was 32 years old. That was the average age. So a lot of young women dying, a lot of young men dying. Uh, I think 44, between 42 and 45 was the average age for men. So there's a lot of widows and even widowers. And so they could remarry. He even encourages them to remarry later on. Um, so, or they could get a job and work somewhere. So don't let a woman, a widow under 60 years old, be taken into the number, and not unless she has been the wife of one man. So she's not been a man hopper. She's been a, a true wife. Verse 10, well reported for good works. So here's what causes me to lean to the interpretation that this is more than just a list of needy people to be part of, but this is a, a list of needy people to be part of, but also a list of people that help minister. Right? Uh, a lot of thieves that are needy people. But you make them part of the distribution team, guess what? All kinds of stuff is going to be disappearing. So we want to meet the needs of true widows who are over 60. But we don't want those who don't have a good reputation, well reported for good works. If she has brought up children, doesn't necessarily mean if she's had kids as a mother giving birth, but she's helped raise up a generation. She's helped bring up children. If she has lodged strangers, in that day and time, uh, the hotels were not fit to stay in. It was a wicked city. The hotels in Ephesus were like brothels. So uh, you might be able to stay there, but I couldn't stay there. It would be too much temptation for me. The Bible says run from it, get away from it. I mean, I could spend the night in a liquor store. That wouldn't be a problem. But in a brothel with all that going on, i got to get out of there. Anyway, go ahead. No, well, in, in Ephesus, not only were the, the hotels brothels, so were the temples. Yeah, temples, and, yes. And if those weren't good enough, well, then there was there was a there was a brothel right across the street from the Library of Celsius. Okay. We'll have to go there sometime. There, Did you go there? I have been there. Okay, so you've seen the artwork. Yes. Yes, okay, there we go. If she, you know, if she's been hospitable, if she has washed the saints' feet... Now, this is more than literally washing someone's feet, but this is serving them like a servant would. If she has relieved the afflicted, ministered to people in her younger days, if she has diligently followed every good work, the answer to those questions is yes, then she can be on the team. Yes, she can be the list. Uh, I kind of lean that way because there are real widows who who are real widows because they've been so mean their whole life and their family is gone from them, they can't find them. And while the Lord can turn their life around, are they supposed to starve? You know? So no doubt a woman like this would take care of a woman like that. So taking care of a woman like this would help, the ripple effect would help take care of women like that. So the priority of ministering to widows is to those that will help minister to people way I see it. But refuse, verse 11, the younger widows. For when they have begun to grow wanton against Christ, they desire to marry, having condemnation because they have cast off their first faith. Now, let me read this. We just heard it a while ago in the New Living Translation. First Timothy five eleven. The younger widows should not be on the list because their physical desires will overpower their devotion to Christ and they will want to remarry. Now later he tells them he wants them to. Then they would be guilty of breaking their previous pledge. Is that because so, they would have to make a pledge saying I'm a widow and I will serve the church and abandon everything. I think to be on this ministry team, I think I think this may be where nuns came from. They pledged their life to the ministry of the church. 
I'm never going to marry again. Well, a lot of widows say that, but when they're young, they don't stick by that. And Paul says, they're, they're, they're too young. They're going to wind up breaking that pledge. It's not fair to hold it to them. Does that make sense? Um, a lot of older people remarry too. Verse 14, we'll go back to verse 13. Therefore I desire that the younger widows marry, bear children, manage the house, give no opportunity to the adversary to speak reproachfully. So he's not against them remarrying. He's against them being part of this team, making this pledge. You know, by faith I'm going to do this. And then wind up falling off the wagon and marrying an unbeliever. Sometimes that happens. Missionary dating, they call it. Don't do that. She's not a believer. Don't give her the time. Well, give her the time of day, but don't invite her for coffee. All right. So here's an opportunity for a widow to be part of this ministry team or be on this list and have her needs met. But if she's healthy, what is she going to do with this free time? If she doesn't have a reputation for serving people, helping people, she's going to get up to mischief. All right, look at this. Besides that, they, speaking of the younger widows, learn to be idle. In other words, lazy. Do you hear about the guy that went to see the doctor and said, Doctor, what is wrong with me? I'm just feeling sluggish and lethargic. And the doctor diagnosed him as having and some he gives some big long Latin term of, of what his health condition was. He says, Doctor, I can't tell my friends that. I can't even pronounce that. Don't give me a scientific term. Tell me in plain old everyday language. The doctor said, You just suffer from laziness, boy. He said, What's that scientific term again? <laughs> So these widows who had husbands that they were serving, right? They were married. And now the husband's gone. And now the church is helping support them. And they learn, with this free time they have, to be idle. Okay? Wandering about from house to house. And not only idle but also gossips and busybodies. You know what so-and-so said about you? You know, so in discord in the church. Saying such things which they ought not. Now here's a dilemma we have today. This isn't just a woman problem. This is a man problem. With all of our modern technology, it's possible to have a lot of free time on your hands. And not to pick on women, but I think they really are more sociable than men are. So some of this may be more of a temptation to them than it is to men. And it's possible for a woman to get drawn into this who's a housewife. She's not a widow. She's got time for this, time for that, time for Facebook, time for telephone call, telewoman call, time for hearing the latest. Idleness. So do we go home and get rid of the dishwashers and unplug the the uh, phone system and get rid of the Wi-Fi? That won't work. I think they need to be involved in ministry of some sort or something for somebody else. Um, some men get upset at their wives because they want to be their wife's world. There's only one you, dude. <laughs> and with all these machinery, it doesn't take long to take care of you. They need to be involved in more, and you don't want them to get drawn into mischief. So you got to pray about that, Lord. Uh, and, of course, we now live with the working woman. That, that takes care of idleness. But if you got small children, who's going to raise them? Who's going to disciple them? Who's going to... So we have temptations in our day, too, just like in their day. But in his case, he did not want young widows on his team because they could become gossips. He obviously had some experience at some other churches. 
we've had a little experience here with women becoming gossips. It's not just the widows. It could be the stay-at-home mom. It could be it could be a man. My granddad, my grandmother, once a month went to a lodge meeting. Grandpa always called it. It was the hen party. But all they did was sit around and talk. Mm. And everybody else in town that wasn't there. And they did some good things, but that wasn't they, whatever they were doing. They talked too. They were a very sociable group. Okay, notice the last line of verse 13. Saying things which they ought not. You know, just because it comes in my head doesn't mean it needs to come out of my mouth. There's some things I should not be saying. And the last line there, verse 14, to speak reproachfully. Give no opportunity to the adversary to speak reproachfully. So I I really believe the devil gets involved. He gets openings when we talk too much. Therefore, I desire younger widows marry, bear children, manage the house, give no opportunity to the adversary to speak reproachfully. So what are the young widows to do until they remarry? Well, Paul in another place said, let the older women teach the younger women how to live godly lives. So these older women have a job to do. And the younger women can be Mighty for God. Verse 15, unfortunately, he says, For some have already turned aside after Satan. You can gossip so much, you become the mouthpiece for the devil, and then it's not long till you get caught. Well, you said this about me, and you said that about me, and before long they leave the scene completely out of church because of the mess that got created, and then they will say this, and we see this with our youth quite often. There's too much drama over there. Meanwhile, they were part of the drama. <laughs> and we see that with boys as much as we see it with girls. So our kids have a lot of idleness on their hands. Nothing wrong with making those kids sweat and work, put them to work. Verse 16, if any believing man or woman has widows, let them relieve them. If I or my wife have a widow in our family, we need to help. And because of the Greek word for grandparent, I mean, even if it's an aunt, I need to do something to help if I can. And do not let the church be burdened. Why? So the church can just go buy Rolls Royces and and the pastor can live like a king in a castle? No. That it may relieve those who are really widows. That's why. There's only so much resources to give away. And what blows my mind in this culture, somehow... We've become such a land of wannabe do-gooders. People come in here I've never seen before in my life telling a big, tall tale, and they expect, and we help when we can, they expect the church to do something. If you're a church, you're supposed to help the poor. Well, we are to help the poor. But if you read Proverbs, it draws a line between two kinds of poor. There's the widows and orphans and disaster victims on one hand, and there's the sluggards and the slothful on the other hand. And we're encouraged to help widows, orphans, and disaster victims. Um, I was part of a church in Houston. You wouldn't believe, man. Every day people coming in. And we, we had 25 acres. So there was a lot of stuff to do. So my, my pastor said, well, put them to work. So we get a shovel or a mower. It wasn't 20 minutes. They were gone. They didn't want to give a hand. They wanted a handout. I, in line with this, I heard a humorous thing this week of this young girl wanting to feed the poor because they were hungry. And her parents were quite proud of her that she wanted to do that. Other friends says, look, come over to my house 
clean the house, mow the yard, I'll pay you 50 bucks, you can go down and buy them some food and do that. So the first week she does it, throw that and buys food. Second week she comes back and says, well, I don't want to, I don't want to do that. Why don't you give the guy the 50 bucks to go buy the food? She says, no, no, I hired you to do the work. She says, well, why don't you hire him to do the work Turn the 50 bucks instead of me giving it to him when he did none of the work. Now you've learned the lesson in responsibility. Yeah. Who's responsible for the other person, themselves or others? If they can do for themselves, they should. Yeah, absolutely. They really can't, they can't. Now, the other thing in here, I, I, in verse 14, it says, no opportunity for the adversary to speak reproachfully. To me, that's, that's just resounds of Satan accusing the brethren before the throne of God of what we ourselves have said or done. So that he's saying, well, they did this in the past, or they said this in the past. Not that he's lying about us, but we've opened the door for him to accuse us by stuff that came out of our own mouth. Mm. Yes. Yes, and there is a theology, and I kind of lean this way, uh, that talks about our overcoming the accusers from the book of Revelation mm -hmm. by the blood of the Lamb, the word of our testimony, loving not our lives even unto death. It says the accuser accused them before the throne of God day and night. All right, so here's here's the unique twist on that. If Jesus saw Satan fall like lightning out of heaven, what's he doing back up there? If he destroyed principalities and power, what's he doing back up there? Either I don't understand that properly, or he's not back up there. So how do the accusations get made before the throne of God? Through the members of the body of Christ that talk too much and become tools for the accuser with their gossip, even with their prayers, even with their preaching. Up here when I'm talking, I have to be careful what I say, lest I open the door. Yeah. At the same time, we've got to teach a principle, so we're not enabling people to take advantage of others. Yes? Would that work in the book of uh, Job, where uh, you know, there's conversation going on between somebody and God, Saying that, well, he's only that good because he's got all this good stuff. You know, okay. Good in his life. Yeah. Okay. Well, well, here's how I think it works in the book of Job, and I think there's a parallel there. I'm glad you brought that up. All right. Job happened before Jesus. Okay. Uh, some people say it was a, it's an allegory. It didn't really happen. Other people say it did happen. And Jesus talked about the patience of Job. So I think that gives some credibility to the story. After okay. But it was before Satan fell out of heaven. Okay. You know, Jesus said, I saw him fall out of heaven, right? And it was in response to people casting out demons, right? We'll, we'll look at it. We'll no, look at it. Satan didn't fall out of heaven when Christ was born on earth. He was here long before then. Right, right, right. But he had access. There's some access. He had access to the throne of God, all right, before the cross. Okay. So he told him, you can touch everything he has. So all that that happened to Job happened. And then Satan reappeared to the Lord and says, let me touch his health, and then he'll curse you. He says, you can, but you can't take his life. So he did that. And Satan, Satan I mean, Job still didn't curse God. So Satan appears to be done, right? Then it comes along these friends, three friends and then a fourth one later saying the most intelligent things that if you read them from the standpoint of being Job, these guys were vicious. Mm -hmm. After staring at him for three or four days not saying anything, or was it seven days? Three. All right, they didn't say anything for a number of days. Then when they began to talk, they say the most vicious things. And the second one said, I was visited by an evil spirit last night, and this is what he said to me. And he said then, basically, basically the Spirit says, you puny humans, who do you think you are to not have to suffer in this life? Yada, 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 yada. Sounds very demonic, you know. So I think Satan couldn't attack his health anymore, couldn't take anything else from him, so he attacked him with his friends, with the words they said. 
I think he was behind the scenes. Because when God shows up, he basically says, none of you all know anything that you're talking about. So we really have to be careful. If somebody quotes Job chapter, verse, something, you've got to be careful with anything that comes out of Job. Make sure it's the word of God. Well, don't you believe it was inspired? Well, I believe God inspired the book to be written, but every word in the book of Job is not the word of God. That sounds heretical, but listen to me. Somebody was teaching on healing. Somebody disagreed with them and says, that sounds very self-centered. Because the Bible says, skin for skin, what will a man give for his skin? And he said, where is that at? He said, it's in Job. He looked it up, and guess who said it? Satan said it. Satan himself said that. So just because Job says, somebody says, Job such and such and such say, don't take that to the bank as the word from God, because God inspired the book to be written, but it's in the story, you know, context. Anyway, so... Oh, this, that's no different than Caiaphas or, you know, the the leaders in Jerusalem saying things that were not from God. Yeah, right. But they're recorded in God's Word. Right. To give us an right. accurate. But b- back to Mike's point, though. God showed up. He had heard all that. Yeah. He had heard all those accusations. They weren't at the throne, but heaven is his throne, the earth is his footstool, the throne of God witnessed it all. So Satan is, is accusing us before God day and night. He may not be in heaven doing it, he may be doing it through us. Well through people. God's footstool hasn't gone away. Yeah. Well the Holy Holy Spirit is, you know, here now as well. We have other things in history where the glory of God has actually been here on earth. Talk just a little bit louder. So um I'm saying that there we have other other times and in, in Old Testament scripture where we see the glory of God is actually shown here on earth. Um, that I don't even know if we know all the all the parts and the pieces to this. Um, uh, we have we have uh, even in the Old Testament we have uh, 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 Jacob wrestling with an angel, a messenger, somebody who touches his hip and he's then he's limping. <laughs> what what does that mean? Some people say, well, it could have been. Uh, word of God that it could have been God there, and, uh, and I, I don't even know if we really even know all the parts of this. Is there yeah. any part of creation that God doesn't hear from? If He's omnipresent, the answer is yeah. no. Yeah, okay, back back to Satan so falling out of heaven. Go to the throne of God to make accusations against it. Is the point I'm trying to get to? Yeah. All right. But back to Satan falling out of heaven. Here's where Jesus said it. Yeah. All right, then we can debate on when it happened. But Luke chapter 10, verse 17, the 72 disciples returned. They joyfully reported to Jesus, Lord, even the demons obey us when we use your name. Verse 18, yes, he told them. I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Look, I have given you authority over all the power of the enemy, and you can walk among snakes and scorpions and crush them. Nothing will injure you. But don't rejoice because evil spirits obey you. Rejoice because your names are registered in heaven. That's the key for rejoicing. Because that's, that's eternally secured. Can't be robbed from us. People that you walk through deliverance, you can cast demons out of people, and they can let them come in with seven of the, with seven of their right. friends, and that can be disheartening if that's the foundation of your rejoicing, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> so our names in the book—that's the ultimate victory over Satan. Amen. So the school of theology I was referring to later—they believe at that point Satan no longer could gain entrance. I understand, but that doesn't—at that point was not when he fell out of heaven; it's when when Christ was speaking it there. It was before. <clears throat> okay. So in Job, when he appeared before God, was that in heaven? don't know. Yeah. yeah. We know he came to earth when Adam and Eve were in the garden. Yes. Because he, he possessed a snake. Right. But the philosophy you have is that when the, well, when the 70 went out and the passing out demons... Then Satan was in heaven, and then he fell out at that point and hadn't been able to go back. That's that's one school of theology that I lean toward. Back to Job, 
it says in chapter 1, one day the members of the heavenly court came to present themselves before the Lord, and the accuser, Satan, came with them. Where have you come from, the Lord asked Satan. Satan answered the Lord, I have been patrolling the earth, watching everything that's going on. So, if the court of heaven is in heaven, Satan is going back and forth. He's definitely positionally no longer positioned in heaven. But if he's able to travel, he could be there. If he's still the prince and power of the air, I don't know. I just think the things we say really can be so demonic, it ought to scare us. It really ought to. Our tongue is a fire set on deadly poison. With that being said, let's talk about enabling. Uh, you want to help the poor, want to help the true widows, uh, and, and you want to be wise so you have enough resources for the people that are truly needy. In the early days of our ministry, we made some serious mistakes trying to help the poor. Uh, one time, a poor lady's car was broke down. We helped her repair it. Paid good church money to help her fix her car. The next week, she wound up in jail. Guess what she was doing? She drove her little car from Granbury down to Rosedale and was selling herself for sexual favors and got picked up by the police and wound up in jail. We helped her do that. So her life got worse. So there are people in the world who have holes in their pockets. So you want to feed them. You want to help in some way. But you got to just be wise. And, and certainly if you make a mistake, you want to make it on the side of mercy and not on the side of judgment. I would think in the Old Testament, Ruth would be an example of a good widow. Yes. She stayed with the older widow, Naomi, who was over 60. Yeah. Yeah. And back back to enabling. At one point, when our when our kids left home, Yvette and I had, you know, had this house, and we took in a homeless kid, and one along we took in another homeless kid, another one, uh, and his brother, and one along we took in another one. Before we knew it, we had five homeless young men living with us out of high school. And we didn't charge them rent. We thought we were helping them. We were actually hurting them because they were not learning lessons they needed to learn for when they left us. One we kicked out, had to. Uh, another one went back home. And the other three, the police said they had to leave because we were being assigned someone to be a guardian over for the next two years. So all those guys but one wound up in jail because they hadn't weren't learning things. So Yvette and I were hurting ourselves, helping them, and actually hurting them but not teaching them life lessons. One Sunday, we had in the service two, two, the two brothers that lived with us. The one brother, not long before that Sunday, had gotten out of jail. Now I have a family. He's making it. He served his time. He's, you know, a clean record. Not, not a clean record, but, you know, a new beginning, his own business. You know, nobody will hire him, but he's got a business, and he's making it. And he's coming to church to this day. Well, the one guy out of the five that never went to jail was here. He's in the military. He got So I introduced and told a little bit of the story. He got a standing ovation, right? That night, he wound up in jail. He had meth on him. Yeah. So everybody, everybody we tried to help wound up in jail. Romans 13 talks about the police, that they are God's servants. Never in your attempt to help the poor, never pay their legal fees because you're not helping them. You're robbing them from a lesson they need to learn. Don't do it. I know it sounds cruel. I know it sounds harsh. But they'll wind up in jail later on, and you will have wasted your investment. Well, they're just so young. Well, the younger they are, the better. Does that make sense? 
Both of my kids have spent the night in jail. I did not bail them out. I had forewarned them. You cross the line, you're on your own, and it's taken out of our hands. In 25 years of pastoring, I have seen kids rebel against their parents, and guess what? God got the safety net for them. The police, they're there to back up the parents. Now, are there corrupt police? Yes, there are. But why break the law and risk suffering at the hands of a corrupt policeman? The police are like honeybees. If you want the honey of law and order, stay away from the bees. Because <laughs> they can sting. Paul said they do not bear the sword in vain. I warned a young man one day after I had a dream. And in that dream, you may have heard me tell it before, I had done something wrong with my vehicle and got pulled over and arrested. So here I am, tufted. They've read my rights, and I'm going into the squad car. And as I, he's helping me with my head. As I'm going into the squad car, somebody drops something in my pocket. And I'm in the car wondering what's in the pocket, and I wake up. And I instantly knew the meaning of the dream. Because I lived on the edge of lawlessness, I became vulnerable to someone else who was lawless, who just happened to be part of law enforcement. <laughs> Because sinners are everywhere. So the interpretation of the dream is, why put yourself in a position of possibly getting framed for something? <laughs> why do that? These boys that wind up in jail for sheetrock dust in Dallas, so sad. It wasn't cocaine, it was sheetrock dust. But they obviously were doing something that put themselves in the eyesight of some guys that wanted to improve their arrest records or something. I'm not sure. But back on the subject of helping people, you want to help them with wisdom. You do not want to enable them. You're wasting your resources, and when a real need comes, you don't have it. Why? Billy Bob got it. Down the toilet. <laughs> anyway, any insights? Am I too hard? I don't think so. The way, the way I go about it is uh, I try to ask the Lord to guide me and where he wants me to give, very specifically, so I don't knock myself out. And I think I'm getting better about it. And I'm not, you know, I try to stay tuned in. Like, you know, there, there, there's this one time that down on Sunday morning, I saw one of the high school kids walk up to the big bowl of mints and big hand, yeah. just like this. And I was like, oh, I'm gonna have to say something. But immediately, I heard Holy Spirit inside, Matt. I've got this. He's on assignment. Immediately. I was like, whoa. Okay. I'm just going to hold off. Coming back in the service, I saw him serving all the other kids. Okay. <laughs> he was being tested by the Lord. I was like, okay. You know, so I just try to be sensitive to what's like, hey, God, saying, give something here. You know, yeah. I've heard a lot of testimonies. I've been the outreach at the feet ministry for years up there often. Mm -hmm. And in the prisons I've heard a lot of testimonies out of those guys. And all of them that come through there that they try to take care of, typically it's years of pain and rebellion coming in and going out. I mean, they come, they come in there and they have strict rules for them that they got to do to stay there. And they'll break them. they have back on the streets. Yeah. They come back, but just over and over again. But it takes years sometimes from to learn the rules Stick with it and then go ahead and get a job and go home with life. Who typically drugs? He's talking about a ministry called the Feet. Literally, the name is Beautiful Feet Mission. Very interesting. The inner city of Fort Worth, well, outside the downtown area, but still in the, in the inner city. It's a two-story building with some other buildings. The main building, um, the, the bottom floor is the basement. It's kind of a split-level deal, so... It's a basement that opens out on the ground in the back, and the top floor opens out on the ground in the front, sort of, kind of. The top floor is the church, and it's a church. It's an old church. And the bottom floor is a dining hall. And every day, Monday to Friday? Seven days a week. Seven days a week, they have church. And after church, they eat. The smell of urine is in the air. But the love of God is there. It's awesome. They cleaned it up quite a bit. 
I use a lot of Clorox. So. And you can take, can you take your kids with you to help serve? Yeah. You can take your kids with you, go to the service, and help serve food in the kitchen. <coughs> it's a wonderful ministry. And then they have dorms for people to stay in. They got a men's but there's dorm. rules. They got a men's dorm now, men's but dorm. they got another, another ladies thing, too. They bought some property right around them there. Interesting place. Yeah. <laughs> you know, my mom made it very clear because my mom raised my brother and I. Parents were divorced since I was seven, and uh, she made it very clear to my brother and I: if you break the law, I will come visit you in jail. Yes. I will not get you out. Yes. I will not post your bond. Yes. I will not hire yes. an attorney. I will not spend any money. But I'll come yes. visit yes. you in jail. Yes. And they. You know why that's biblical? You know why that's biblical? Jesus said, I was in prison and you visited me. He did not say, I was in prison and you bailed me out. I was in prison and you visited me. But that, and it it made a point on my brother and I for all of our life. Mm -hmm. And uh, and then my daughter had not paid all of her speeding tickets and was pulled over in Houston. (laughs) I think she was a senior in high school. And she spent about seven hours in jail that day while her stepdad had to come and get her because they would release her, but somebody had to come get her. And But he did, and she says that was the longest ride home. He didn't say a word. Mm-hmm. And I said, you ever been back in jail since then? She goes, no, no, no. I'll go, <laughs> I'll go take care of it now. I didn't take care of those things before. Yeah. Well, you're 17. Yeah. Well, you learn now that at 37. Absolutely. Don't let those tickets get away from you. Become warrants. Well, she didn't oh, tell my her, goodness. her mom and stepdad because, you know, she might lose a car and get grounded or other stuff. Yeah. Teenagers making. They'll catch you at the most inconvenient time. You might be on your way to your wedding. 